people have opinions without being fully informed. Trust me, I'm a Canadian here. I don't care if you're a Christian, Messianic, or Hebrew roots. I want to know if your theology is biblical. Maybe I'm right. Of course I'm right. If you're going to cite a source, be responsible. You know, cite your source. You're welcome, college. Hey, we're just having a conversation. There's only 36 people listening anyway, right? You can Google it. Wow, at what point does history matter? At what point does truth matter? An alien invasion. Is it biblical? Of course it is. Look, there's a way to do scholarship and a way not to do scholarship. you got to cite your source. Who's your source? My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows his kid is going with the girl. And that about sums it up. What up in Shalom? Welcome to the Robin Caleb Show. A show where theology matters, scholarship counts, and theology matters. My name is Caleb Hegg. With me, of course, Rob Vanhoff. We've been having technical difficulties, and I apologize for that. But uh, hopefully we've got it all worked out now. We'll find out in a couple of minutes. Rob, how you doing, man? Besides the technical difficulties, how you doing, brother? I'm doing well. Good. Thank God. Good. We have a little bit of a controversial show today, I would say. What do you think? What? Do you th- well, you know. Yeah, controversial. I think it's controversial. Controversy, <laughs> controversy, Well, you know, anytime you oppose rabbinical uh, view, and actually, it's not just rabbinical view. I mean, this uh, the topic today for those who have seen it in the title or whatever. Um, you know, we're talking about Hillel and Shammai. Ultimately, uh, we'll get to some other things first too, but. Uh, yeah, it's uh, you know it's it's something that uh, people tend to have uh, uh, strong opinions about. So what can you do? Anyway, yeah, all right. How's your week been, man? It's been going good, going well. We had a Rob and I had an interesting talk the other day. Uh, very interesting, I'd say, uh, and it was about this topic. So we've actually kind of boned up on this. Well, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. I, okay. Well, maybe we shouldn't say that. I've got different things swimming around in my brain, and I have to like reorient myself to every world I inhabit. Yeah, no doubt. It's like Greek class. It's like Greek, right? Aramaic class, Aramaic. Then there's all the things on the plate coming up. It's uh, yeah. You have a bunch of stuff that you have to uh, prepare for in terms of uh, video uh, uh, presentations at various places, right? Are you already working on your stuff for uh, Israel? Yeah. Yeah. It's all cooking. It's like, I feel like I've got, I'm like back when I worked as a line cook yeah. for a, at a bar and grill. <laughs> yeah. When I was a teenager, it was like, I've got all these, you know, they got the orders coming up. And there's all these orders and I've got like, and I'm working with another cook and we're like, boom, order up, order up, you know, That's and all funny. this time pressure and it's good. It's like, I'm thankful that the Lord is patient um, because, you know, I, I can be impatient sometimes. And so um, learning that I have to trust the process of, of growth and development of of ideas and trust that I, you know, there's a, there's on one hand, it's like, I want it all done now. Sure. But the reality of it, just things take time. What's the first one that you have coming up? You have uh, Israel coming up first. Yeah. Yeah. So that's in August. So, uh, so that's kind of the, the, the most, you know, pressing. And then 
my my sense is that once that's once I'm over that hoop or over that that hill, you know, sure, sure. then I'll have a little bit more free, ah, like I'll chill a little bit, and then I can focus on November. November? What are you talking? Got you got in, camp. We got camp in between in late August. So, um, plus, <laughs> you know, anyway, so camp's gonna I be fun. But camp's I appreciate be- every, anybody's prayers just uh, on my behalf for. Uh, for patience and the ability to, to focus and then to, to be happy with little gains, you know, to get a little progress and then not stress if I don't make as much progress as I, as I'd like, you know, just Caleb, I'm sure you're doing the same thing as you're writing and and researching for your thesis. It's like, you know, you kind of, you kind of, uh, have your ideal productivity and then you've got the realities of life. Don't just, you know, you've got to get through your everyday thing, you know, and, and somehow navigate all these things to, to get to your end goal. Yeah, no doubt. I keep getting people telling me that, uh, YouTube is not, uh, is not, you know, uh, nobody's seen us on YouTube, but I honestly don't, you know, I don't know what to tell people. Um, you know, what am I supposed to do? We're supposed to be streaming live on YouTube right now. Huh? I don't have a YouTube open, so. Well, neither do I. Uh, well, I do, but there's nothing coming through. So, um, you know, whatever. I guess people are just gonna have to watch it on the on the on the recording once I put it up. Okay, but we're so, capturing the video still. Yeah, we got the video going. So, yeah, it is what it is. What can you do? Okay, let's uh, let's get into it. So, um, there's multiple. Oh, by the way, we should also. Uh, I mentioned camp. Camp finally got its its title for those out there who are interested in the camp title. And I know a lot of people probably aren't interested in that, but uh, we're going to be talking on um, personal uh, personal Bible study habits. In other words, uh, you know, tr- preparing for personal devotions, preparing for family devotions or small groups, um, how to study the Bible, good practices, uh, bad practices, what, uh, what resources to use, so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, uh, should be good. Okay. Uh, let's start with, uh, the easy stuff. Uh, the Robin Caleb show is brought to you by Torah resource, torahresource.com. Go there for all sorts of free resources and, um, uh, yeah, all sorts of good stuff. And not only that, but you can also, uh, take classes from, um, from Torah Resource Institute, where Rob is a, uh, a teacher as well, and we'd encourage everybody to do that. And of course, you can also call our comment line, 253-465-3205. Yes, I am fully aware, everyone out there in Radio Land, that uh, we are not streaming directly to YouTube right now, and I apologize for that. I don't know what in the world is going on. I'm going to have to fix it later. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Um, yeah. You can find us on Twitter too. Okay, so uh, let's get right into it then. Um, now, recently we've kind of taken what I might call a somewhat of a new approach, uh, and the new approach basically is we're trying to look at various teachings, whether or not we agree with the people or not. We're trying to look at various teachings from all walks of different uh, denominations. If I suppose that's a good one. Mainly looking at different things within the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement, but obviously, especially with Dr. Petrie coming on and and whatnot, it's not just uh, it's not just looking at at uh, Hebrew Roots or, or uh, Messianic faith. It's also looking at, at Christianity as a whole, uh, 
and faith in the Messiah Yeshua and the way that we walk out our, our lives. So basically what, what Rob and I are trying to do in these shows is we're trying to look at various teachings and ask uh, some of the questions that we would ask uh, if we were coming uh, at uh, at um, into a study or if we were watching this, even if we're just watching a YouTube video or something like that, what are the kinds of things that we ask uh, ourselves in order to uh, test whether or not this uh, each teaching is, is good or not. And uh, so I, my father actually shared a uh, video with me. I didn't watch very much of it, honestly. Uh, I turned it, af- it off after uh, a, a very short time. And the reason why it was uh, several fold. Um, but he, this gentleman, and I believe his name is Scott. Scott, uh, he brought forth several arguments that I think are actually starting to become more prevalent within the Hebrew Roots and Messianic movement. So this isn't actually to, to pick on Scott, but more to just look at uh, some of the things that he said. And actually, after I pulled uh, one of these clips, I, uh, I I got into a discussion with somebody on Facebook, and they actually said the exact same thing that uh, this gentleman Scott says in his video. And so I want to take a look at it. And this, so this isn't even the topic of the video that I watched. He just kind of prefaced, pref, prefaced his whole um, his whole video with this specific uh, claim. And let's take a listen. Let me just say real quick that here at Beit Tefillah, we don't use the term of the title of Christ for our Messiah, as Christ may mean anointed in Greek, but all the Greek or pagan gods were anointed, or they all were Christ's. There were Christ a thousand years before the Messiah was born, and since we are to be set apart, we also keep our Messiah set apart, and thereby we do not call him a Christ or identify him as such. Okay, so I'm wondering if his claim here is that um, other, like, uh, kings in the ancient world were anointed to become kings I, I i'm wondering if and some ancient kings were seen as uh as as gods uh but he doesn't he doesn't substantiate uh you know he doesn't give reference to what he's talking about but uh, this is uh, becoming more of a prevalent uh, kind of claim within the hebrew roots and messianic movement which is that uh that the different terms it's not just christ and for those who don't know, the the uh, the title Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means uh, anointed or Messiah is how we'd say that in English. What's interesting, and I put this in, uh, I put a verse in, in the show notes and I could bring up plenty others, but uh, Yeshua refers to, uh, he says, if you follow the Christ, right? Um, so, yeah. What are your thoughts on this, Rob? Well, go, there's a lot of a lot that can be said here. Um, one thing to keep in mind is, first of all, this this reminds me of. It might not be as extreme, but it's of the same genre of argument as, you know, bunnies and eggs goes back to Nimrod. It reminds me of that kind of thing. Um, because he's not, he's not demonstrating. He, he here were, here's what I heard. Um, we don't use Christ to talk about Yeshua, even though the apostolic writings use it. So we're we're anti we're anti Greek apostolic writings, first off. But why? Because a thousand years before that, the Greek gods were also called anointed, were also called Christ's, mm. and it would be pagan to take 
this from Greek mythology and apply it. So he's he's his argument if let's just assume for a minute it's a valid argument. Let's grant let's say okay it's a valid argument. If we had our imaginary time travel machine, our TARDIS or whatever, you know, from Doctor Who, and we go back to the first century, we could we could take this argument against the Apostle Paul. We could say, Paul, you're writing these letters, and you're using this word, Christos, and it's pagan. You need to knock it off. Now, uh, he might counter this person, where let's just say, well, it was originally written in Aramaic. Or and, and, and it was I, originally written in Hebrew. Well, the thing is, if you look at the Evan Bohan, you know, the, the Shem Tov Hebrew Matthew, or you look at even the the, uh, the Peshitta, they, they have the word Christos in there, hmm. just transliterated into those terms. So the criticism, it, even if we take it as a, as a valid criticism, it doesn't fit with the historical picture. But not only that, he's not substantiating. It's not a, it's not a valid argument. He hasn't substantiated the fact that there are any Greek gods called Christos, for one. You know, so and the, that it's a thousand years before. What Greek text do we have from a thousand BC? Right. Mm. I mean, th- there's so many problems. This is why it reminds me of the, of the just throw it at the wall because it sounds good on the surface, and people who aren't, you know, taught to think critically are going to probably swallow it up and then feel guilty, or they're going to judge somebody. Oh, he just said Jesus Christ instead of Yeshua Messiah. Oh no. I, I now all of a sudden I'm I'm my mind's in turmoil because this guy is reading scripture and he says Christ you know mm. um, that's problematic oh and I, so this reminded me of a book that's a, an excellent book this is uh, and I just thought of it just now this is uh, what year is this this Oxford 2012 Oxford it's called Christ among the Messiahs I'll hold it up there Matthew Novenson Christ mm-hmm. among the mm-hmm. Messiahs I've seen him uh, speak. A couple times at SBL, excellent scholar. I've got a couple of his books, I think, uh, or at least articles besides this one. Um, Christ, the subtitle is Christ Language in Paul and Messiah Language in Ancient Judaism. So he gets into this very issue of, of how, what did the word Christos mean in first century Jewish world. And, you know, Caleb, since at Torah Resource, we teach the three main biblical languages. We teach Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek because we understand and appreciate the facts that are on the ground, that Greek was um, the, probably the major Jewish language in the Second Temple period. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, um, and of course, Aramaic and Hebrew are also used, but Greek, that we have more Greek Jewish literature than any other literature that is written by Jews in the Second Temple period, um, and and to deny that, to pretend that those Jews didn't exist, sure, and didn't and didn't write and think in Greek, is is either completely naive, or or completely foolish. You know, I mean, you choose where you are on the spectrum. The facts are the facts, and if you want to imagine, you know, the 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 myth of the Peshitta New Testament being the, quote, the original, like the Roth uh, translation tries to, it's just, 
it's foolishness. It really is foolishness to continue, especially we've addressed this so many times, if you're going to keep pushing that kind of issue, or if you're going to follow that that the um, Hebrew Matthew from the 12th or 13th century somehow is the original Hebrew Matthew. Mm-hmm. You know, learn the If you're really going to uh, take a sword and fight on one of these hills, the only way you, you have a you even stand a chance of even evaluating whether you can win the battle is you got to learn the languages first and you got to learn the, the the history of translations and texts and stuff like that. Um, it's just I, like Yeshua says, cal- you know, it's a fool for a king to not sit down and cal- count the cost in advance, you know, or if he's going to, or if a guy's going to build a house or if he's going to go to battle. Um, to sit down and figure out strategically in advance whether or not he's going to win, or whether, he, whether he can win, or whether he can finish the house, and that's what I see people like this doing: is that they're, they're, they, he hasn't sat down to actually do the math on what his argument is, and he, he's, he has nowhere to go. It's a dead end. Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that he, uh, that uh, you know, he's. I think this is obviously going to be someone who um, who, who takes the apostolic scriptures as being written in, in Hebrew or Aramaic and not in Greek. And so, you know, obviously we've talked about this before as well. Um, this is going to be problematic. And you're going... And the, oh, one other point I was going to say, if I may, Caleb, it just had to do with the Gospel of John. You know, because we have, we have among the apostles, and it's beautiful, it's beautiful, God wired this in on purpose, is to, to challenge the insularity that language groups have. Right, if you're going to be a responsible Bible scholar who is a disciple of Yeshua, you've got to get your feet wet in both Greek and in Hebrew. You have to you have to have some sort of uh, orientation to those two completely different language systems, right? Because that's and God didn't let it just be Hebrew. On purpose, because it it, it's gone, it, you know, just look at what has happened with the Talmud, which actually has Aramaic. There's more Greek in the Mishnah than, than, you, than you can imagine anyway. But the point is that the insularity of these groups, God wanted to hardwire a way where that insularity could not occur, because that prevents the light from going out, right? And uh, a fear of the other. And when, in fact, we have to learn to appreciate another person's perspective in order to build genuine relationship. You can't, it can't just be always my way and never the other person's way. God wants to include the other person. And just like it says, every language, every tongue will confess. So the multiple languages is critical. So mm-hmm. this idea of Greek bad, you know, Hebrew good, Greek bad, be on the lookout for that. Don't, don't let that kind of thinking, um, be a foundation for for any judgments or things you make. You want to be on the lookout for that. I think that I think that this ultimately comes probably from a little bit from um, Lou White's uh, fossilized customs uh, and the idea that like the word God is bad or the word um, the you know the word Jesus actually comes from Jesus or I mean there's all you know there's all sorts of of things that he uh, said in that book that are simply not not true um so anyway okay um let's go on this this is not the only clip that i pulled from this gentleman's uh this gentleman's 
um, uh, little clip that he has here. Um, so, and once again, this isn't to pick on him, but uh, these are some of the things that I uh, noticed almost instantly when I started listening to this. I actually, um, before we do that, I want to go back to my show notes real quick. Uh, my my father made some comments um, on. <laughs> on the clip that we just heard about, uh, Christ being pagan. Uh, this is what my father wrote down. He said, do you call him king? Do you call him the creator? Do you call him son of God? All of these titles were also used by earthly kings or attributed to false gods. And then my father outlined a logical fallacy. And we've seen this recently with other teachers in the Hebrew roots uh, slash messianic movement um, making logical fallacies. And so uh, my father says when uh, this is his definition of a logical fallacy, when different entities share a common element, this proves they have a co- have something in common. Uh, origin or that uh, a common origin or they share all things in common. And this is not correct. And my father gives an illustration. He says, Hitler wore pants and he was a Nazi. Therefore, anyone who wears pants is a Nazi. And we see this with uh, with uh, kind of Zach Bauer's recent teaching as well on goddesses. Since they share attributes, they must all come from the same place is what uh, Zach was trying to argue. And uh, once again, this is a logical fallacy. It's just because, you know, uh, grass is green, frogs are green. Therefore, grass must be frogs. Uh, no. That's not the way it works. Okay, um, let's move on to this next clip. This was really interesting to me because I, I really honestly did not follow the logic of, of where this was coming from. Um, but let, let's take a listen to, and this is the same same person, Scott, uh, talking on, now his, his video, which is in the show notes for those who uh, are interested, his uh, video was t- titled, uh, it should be called Polyanity. Polyanity instead of Christianity, and he's going to explain why. Let me also say up front here that I am not a Paul basher. I believe the translators took many liberties with Paul's letters, adding and subtracting things here and there to push their agendas, mostly lawless agendas. Okay, I got, I got to stop real quick. One of the reasons why is because we have early, um, we have early manuscripts of Paul, right, in in Greek. So it's this isn't just translators. You know, Daniel Wallace in the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts has done some amazing work. I, I believe it's P46 is, is one of the earliest um, manuscripts that uh, that includes Paul's some of Paul's writings. And so um, the idea that translators now have changed the Bible, well, I don't, you know, I agree that every translator is going to have a bias, Right, and we've talked about this before on the show as well. Uh, the King James Version uh, folks—they had a bias, and it, no matter what, no matter what uh, English translation you look at, there is going to be bias. So this gentleman Scott is right about uh, maybe possibly the idea of there being a bias, but the fact is is that today we have a lot of people who are going and learning biblical Greek, and can actually sit down and look at the text and see what the text said. They, they don't have to rely on a translator. Rob's a person like that. My father's a person like that. I'm attempting to become a person like that. Um, it's certainly not as easy as I had hoped. <laughs> but but the, the fact is, is that we don't have to always rely on translations. We can rely on uh, scholars who, who are, are looking at the original text. Okay, let's keep going with this. Mostly lawless agendas. For example, where the Bible has Paul writing, we are saved by grace alone in Ephesians chapter 2, it's well known that Martin Luther added the word alone to the end of that verse, and that changed it considerably. 
Martin Luther was well known for adding or changing a lot of things to his Bible. For example, he added the word mercy seat to kind of glamorize the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. That comes from the German Nadenstuhl, which is mercy seat. But the original or the ancient Hebrew text says kapareth, which simply means lid. It's not a mercy seat. We don't need to glamorize it. Let's just say what it is. Okay, so this is where I actually... This, this is just strange. It, it is kind of weird. It sounds like he's reading from a Strong's Concordance in terms of Hebrew. Because his... his, his, uh, his uh, now, this is... You know, the only reason I point this out is because he's making bold claims yes. that are going to shape the people who listen to him and and get track, you know, that he gets traction with are going to attribute some sort of authority to him and they're going to trust him uh, in terms of how he's teaching them Hebrew from Greek, right? Because he's, pre- he's, he's basically saying we don't use Greek, we use Hebrew. And then he's, he's, and now he says we don't use this German word that Martin Luther, we go to the, let's go to the original Hebrew. But the way he's pronouncing Hebrew shows me that he's read it from a book. He actually uh, wouldn't be able to sit down, and this is my opinion, and I've taught Hebrew, I don't know for how long. My opinion it just is that if, to sit down with this person and to read Hebrew and, and ex, uh, explain meaning, he would not be able to do that, not, neither in Hebrew nor in Greek. But he's making bold claims that people are going to— make decisions by, important well, well, decisions by. Let's actually look at some of the claims, because the claims themselves are, are actually very interesting. So uh, he says that it's a well-known fact that uh, Martin Luther added to his translation. Let's listen to that again. For example, where the Bible has Paul writing, we are saved by grace alone in Ephesians chapter 2. It's well known that Martin Luther added the word alone to the end of that verse. Okay, first of all, Let's look at Luther's yeah, translation. Well, hang on just a sec. Let's look at uh, Luther's translation. So he's talking about Ephesians 2.8. 2, 2, 8. Um, I can't find a translation that has the word alone in it, not even Martin Luther's. So N- Martin Luther's 1545, I have the German, but I don't speak German and I don't want to butcher it. So, uh, But uh, I have the translation of the German as well. For by grace you have been saved by faith and not by yourselves. It is the gift of God. This is Luther's translation. Wycliffe, yeah, so, Wycliffe yeah. also has, for by grace ye be saved by faith, and this not of you, and that not of you, for it is the gift of God. And then Tyndale has, for by grace are ye made safe thereo faith, and that not of yourselves, for it is the gift of God. And Do then, we know of any translation that has only or alone? I no, not, alone. That, not that I've found. Coverdale also, and uh, the reason I'm giving you all these old translations is because Luther uh, wrote in 1545. So all these other translations are before that. Finally, Coverdale 1535. For by grace are ye sued or saved, thorough faith, and that not of your salus <laughs> selves, so, for it is the gift of God. Um, th- yeah, my point is, is so that, is he is he just paraphrasing a, a, a translation that doesn't exist or or is he actually reading a translation and he just doesn't tell us what translation? He's not. I think he's paraphrasing, but he's he 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 doesn't seem to have it right. And this so this is obviously one of the red flags is that he says everyone knows that it's a well known fact that uh, Luther added to the Word of God, but then he seems to bring up a claim that I'm un- I can't find anywhere. It's certainly not in Luther's Bible. Um. So I'm not sure where he's taking that from. But 
it's it's a very interesting claim, one that I can't find any substantial proof of. Hmm. Um, and he doesn't and he doesn't give his listeners any uh, rabbit trail or any breadcrumbs, right, to follow to say, oh, I'm gonna. I mean, you go to Luther and well, let's uh, okay. Let's take it out of the realm of just this person, though. Let's take it away from Scott. I mean, I've heard these kind of arguments before, right? We've I've heard that you know, oh, the translators have added all these things, or you know, Luther uh, really tried to twist the scriptures, or Luther, you know, he tried to throw James out of his Bible, and I I know that Luther called James a a, a book of straw, but. Um, Basically, the the point is, is that now it seems like we're just having, you know, I, I haven't seen good claims of, of Luther um, uh, adding to the Bible. The other interesting thing is that he says that Luther was the one who um, who put in uh, mercy seat. Uh, I You know, I think that Tyndale put it in long before, in 1526, right? Exodus 25, 17 from, from Tyndale. And oh, I don't know. Look, at, do you have it there? Yep. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, cubits and a half long, and so, cubits so and Tyndale a half broad. So uh, was ahead of Luther by what? Uh, he were, you? No, 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 no. They were in the, They were. They were. They knew each other. I think. Uh, book, oh, are they from the same? Yeah. Book okay, of, that shows my, my book, time book of my fi- time book of fire makes a good case. I think that uh, that that Tyndale actually went and visited Luther, but that could be that could be hotly debated. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Luther wrote his uh, his or published his Bible rather in 1545. Tyndale pu- published his Bible in 1526. So you have uh, about tw- uh, 19 years between the publications. Um, but the point is, is that Tyndale's Tyndale certainly had it first. It wasn't like Luther was uh, attempting to be malicious, you know, in his in his uh, in what he was writing. Um, so anyway, I, the the reason that I one of the reasons I really wanted to bring this up is because I see more people globbing onto the idea of the idea of the word Christ being a a pagan word, or the idea that uh, you know Luther somehow maliciously tried to change the text. We have Greek manuscripts, some of which are from the early second century. We don't need to, uh, you know, it's not like we're dependent on Martin Luther, Tyndale, and Wycliffe for our for our English translations. We have the ability to go and actually look at what the Greek says. Well, and we have, I think, in Philo and Josephus, um, they use this word hilasterion, mm. which is used in the Epistle of Hebrews. To talk about um, the kaporet, you know, yeah. the covering of the ark, and and then the Greek. So the here again we have uh, Greek speaking Jews who use the word mercy, which is the basis of this word hilasterion, um, or graciousness, merciful mercy, um, to interpret what the kaporet is. And if and if the if you look at the root of kaporet from le caper to atone, to uh, make propi- propitiation, um, you can understand why gr- Greek speaking Jews use this. They they thought of it as the place of mercy. They're, they're, so this the seat, mercy seat. It's like the place, and they're seeing it as a throne, kind of right. They're, they're, I think maybe the image there. I don't see that. That might be slightly midrashic. But it's not inappropriately so. Sure. I, I, um, I think this guy, by adding the word alone in Ephesians 2, 8, 
and not telling us where, and I can't, I mean, I'm just doing, looking at random while you're talking, Caleb, look at pulling up random English translations, all comparing Ephesians 8. I don't see any that say alone, Yeah. but yet he just takes it like it's a thing. Well, he's just as guilty now of doing what he's accused Luther, Luther of doing, yeah. um, uh, you know, uh, I, so... I, I want to go back real quick. I do want to go back real quick. Uh, back to the uh, subject of of, of Christ, uh, the the Greek word Christos being pagan. Um, okay, so I was just looking here. I have uh, Mark nine forty one put up. Yeshua is speaking. He says, "For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christos, Christos, will be by no means lose his reward." Okay, now let's pretend for just one second. Let's pretend that uh, that Yeshua is speaking Aramaic or he's speaking Hebrew in this passage, in the original, okay? If that is the case, which I don't necessarily believe it is, but if that is the case, then he would have used something like Mashiach, right? Or, uh, yeah, Mashiach. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I wonder if, the, if uh, people who are, which means the same thing, right? It means anointed, anointed one. Um, so I wonder if people who like this Scott fellow who is saying that Christos is pagan and we don't use it because other kings and gods were anointed, um, I wonder if they're then against the Hebrew word Mashiach because it means the exact same thing, right? Right, right. Back to Matthew Novitson's book, Christ Among the Messiahs. Mm. You could make the same. There's so many. Plus, now, 2,000 years later, there are so many people who had come up claiming to be the Messiah that were false messiahs. Do we not use the word Mashiach because Bar Kokhba, right? Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, any other, you know, Shabbatai Tzvi or any of these other from the Jewish history. Um, it, it doesn't make sense, you know. Um, so it's a person who's, you know, it sounds like they're zealous. They, they, they're, in my view, struggling to differentiate. He's struggling to differentiate himself from probably some sort of Christian tradition. He understands the value of the Torah. He hasn't fully absorbed what we would call a one Torah uh, perspective and actually been able to flesh it out, looking at history and you know grammatical history and language, etc. Um, and he's trying to take a machete to hack his way into the forest, you know, or, or through the bush with, and, um, so I, I hope, you know, he might hear if, if he even hears what we're talking about, he'd probably, you know, maybe not be real happy about our, our comments. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we're, we're not telling him to, to abandon his, his zeal for centering his understanding according as a continuity of Torah rather than a doing away of Torah. We, we applaud that sure. position, but you gotta, you gotta go about it smartly and it's not a drive through. You need to learn if you're really, if you're going to be out there telling people what to believe, you have, you've got to do your homework. I mean, you've got to do your homework and that means you got to get some schooling, you know, uh, you got to learn the languages. You got to learn the history. You can't, um, you know. Otherwise, you're just gonna you're gonna find yourself, you know, ten years down the road, and you're gonna learn something. You're gonna realize you've been fighting on the wrong hill. You know, that's 
it's the Spe- only other way I can think of it. Speaking of history, let's uh, let's go now to uh, the the main topic of the day because this actually will. I, oh, I, we're not there yet. No, we're not. When we talk about history, this is a this is a this is a good segue. Um, I got into a conversation online with uh, a good friend of mine who actually goes to the congregation that I go to. And I ended up actually deleting the whole thread uh, for multiple reasons. It wasn't just because I was talking to my friend about uh, this subject, but it brought up, you know, it reminded me um, that a lot of people, even even the people who might agree with us that, uh, you know, we can't read, we can't read some of the rabbinical literature back into the first century. I think that a lot of people might agree with that, but at the same time, the implications and or the full weight of what that means hasn't actually set in for a lot of people in the Hebrew roots and the Messianic movement or even the Christian, uh, the Christian movement. Uh, the, uh, I apologize. I apologize. Live caller. Right. <laughs> Line uh, one, we have Jimmy. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, scholarship is starting to come around to this, uh, more and more so. And I think we started to see the shift, um, uh, with uh, Newsner's writing all the way from the seventies up through the nineties. Uh, this friend of mine who I'm not going to name just cause I don't, I don't know if he would want me to do that or not, but this friend of mine uh, suggested that Newsner wasn't the best of scholars because his uh, Talmud translation was horrific. And even his Hebrew teacher said that his uh, knowledge of, of Mishnaic Hebrew seemed to be non-existent. That's what this person said. Um, and, uh, so uh, who, wait a minute, that Neusner's Hebrew teacher said that? Yes. Or or this person who's making no Neusner's he he was claiming that Neusner's Hebrew teacher said that uh, that he and, and it wouldn't surprise me if that quote came from uh, somewhere on like a, a Jewish website or something. Neusner's not really loved among a lot of people uh, in certain areas for certain reasons. Um, however, I think that uh, right. I think I think that Neusner is. No matter what you think of his uh, translation of the of the Babylonian Talmud, I think uh, Neusner has proven himself to be a formidable scholar. Uh, yeah, you got to understand if you're going to criticize Neusner, you need to know why. You, you need to know why. Um, you know, it, it, he he published more books, I think, in the 20th century than any other he, person has in history. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and so you can't just, you know, you've got to be clear on what your criticisms i'm not saying he's he's uh he should be immune to criticism i don't mean to say that at all oh his his uh, i will admit i think that uh the the uh, his translation of the babylonian talmud is the one that i i like using the least it's very difficult to use it's not his translation isn't that great um not the point uh, I, I would agree i i agree with with that um so anyway the point is is that uh, but on the flip side he was doing something nobody else was doing yeah, I mean, in in a way that really uh, scholars w- coming after in the wake of Neusner benefit from his work one way or another. Right? Oh yeah, that's, that's that's for sure. There's no doubt about it. Um, so, uh, but nonetheless, what one of the things that he did, and, and it wasn't just Neusner, by by the way. Uh, uh, you know, we had some some other major scholars. So for instance, uh, E.P. Sanders, N.T. Wright, these gentlemen started doing work on the new perspective in Paul, on Paul. And uh, from that, they were using a lot of uh, rabbinic sources and whatnot. That, that has even started to change now today. Uh, you have uh, Dr. Instone Brewer, who was working on the Trent Project. That basically, to from what I understand, and I could be totally wrong about this, um, from what I understand, it basically kind of got put on hold because he was 
attempting to do just that, which was read first, uh, the Mishnah and the Talmud back into first century Judaism, and scholarship has shifted enough in that um, that, it, that it, it wasn't working. Um, now, we see uh, even in uh, uh, Dr. Petrie's book, uh, anyone who has started reading that, he continually says, I don't, I don't want to assume that we can read the Mishnah back into first century Judaism. He says that constantly. Um, but it, sometimes what he will do is he'll say, but since we have uh, the same thing going on in the uh, New Testament, then it's a witness to maybe this, you know, that what the Mishnah might be saying. So, you know, that's how he'll use it. But he's very cautious in that. And, and I, I'm grateful that he is cautious in that. Um, so here's the question, and, and my, my buddy also said you got to be careful because, uh, you know, what you're saying, a lot of people are going to take as anti-Semitic. Well, you know, you got to be, uh, you got to, I, I have to be honest with the sources. So the, here's the, here's the overall argument. My friend was saying how, uh, I forget exactly what portion of scripture we were talking about, but he said, well, Yeshua was responding uh, to the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai that were having this debate at the same time. And my point was, well, I might agree that Hillel and Shammai might have been actual people, uh, but I don't see any evidence whatsoever that these people had uh, large schools or that they were the leading voices in, in rabbinic thought in the first century or that they even existed in the first century. And uh, so my friend actually brought up uh, something that's in the Jewish Encyclopedia. It's online resource. And granted, I think that, uh, you know, obviously what's the Jewish outlook going to be? The Jewish outlook on this is going to be, well, the Mishnah uh, and the Talmud go back to Sinai. Certainly they were around in the first century. And uh, these teachings have, you know, always been part of our, our history. And so, of course, they were around in the first century. Well, that's that can be said, but you know, once again, where's where's the proof of this? The earliest manuscript that we have, I think the the scrap manuscript that we have of something that looks like it was from the Mishnah, I think was found in the Cairo Geniza, dated to the seventh or eighth century. Uh, we don't have anything more substantial than that until I think the ninth or tenth century, and we don't have a full complete uh, manuscript of the Mishnah uh, until the twelfth century, which is found in a uh, copy of the Babylonian Talmud. So. Um, the manuscript evidence is simply not there. Uh, and for those who are watching this, who maybe are new to the show, or maybe you uh, are coming out of Christianity or you're in Christianity, and maybe uh, this is all kind of new to you. Uh, it is purported that the, uh, that the Mishnah was written down in the third to fourth century um, by uh, Yehuda Hanasi. That's the claim. However, once again, we don't really have good evidence of that. Uh, it's kind of as if this has been repeated time and time again. And, and actually, my rabbinics teacher <laughs> is Rob. And so Rob could probably uh, shed much more light on this than I could. Um, however, it it doesn't seem that we have any solid evidence that it was uh, that the that Yehuda Hanasi actually wrote down the Mishnah first of all, and it doesn't seem that we have any solid evidence that it was done in the third or fourth century. Now, I, I'm a, I'm fine being saying that uh, that uh, let's let's pretend that we do have that evidence that it was written down in the fourth century. Well, for for this discussion, I think that's something that we can we can just uh, go ahead and uh, we'll assume it for now. 
assuming that the Mishnah was written down in the fourth century, um, the question that I would have is, what evidence do we have from first century sources that uh, Hillel and Shammai were prominent teachers or even existed in the first century? Because I think that we can see within various uh, rabbinical literature that one of the things that the rabbis attempt to do is assign more weight to a teaching. And they do that by saying that someone earlier said it. Right. Right. And so to me, the school of Hillel, the school of Shammai could just as well be, okay, we need, we have these two thoughts. One is going to be more lenient. One is going to be more strict. And so we're going to assign, we're going to basically play it, play them against each other. Yeah. We're going to play them against each other. So we'll just, you know, and we'll play these two, you know, we'll, we'll say that these are the arguments. We'll put them in the first century and we'll say that they're Hillel and Shammai. Um, because I don't think that, you know, uh, you found this the other day and, and, and remind me about this. I think the first attestation that we have of the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, which by the way, uh, they're never called rabbi. I learned that from Rob the other day. Um, but the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, the first, uh, reference that we have to them in, in, in historical documents is actually Jerome, right? I, I believe that's true. Jerome mentions... He's now Jerome. Obviously, he's what fourth, fifth century. Yes. So he's, so he's an out external source. Jerome spent time in Israel learning Hebrew, right? I mean, because he was all about. Remember, Jerome was saying we need to revise or a brand new or brand new Latin translation of scriptures. We need to go directly from Hebrew into Latin. That's mm-hmm. what Jerome was all about. That was his kind of his holy grail quest. Um, and so he said, he said, I need to learn Hebrew so I can do this, right? Because the scriptures need to, we need a hardwired translation Hebrew directly into Latin and not go through the Greek. That was his, did he accomplish that is a different evaluation we're not going to make, but that's his effort. That's why he's learning Hebrew. And so he's interacting with Jews. So we know he's talking about that there's, you know, school of Hillel and school of Shammai, but he's talking about what Jews in his day or age are talking about. He's not, a, he, he of course is not a, a witness for first century, right? Jerome is, Jerome is talking about what he's encountering in his day and age. So, but what we do not have is um, first century evidence of these houses, you know, house of Hillel or house of Shammai. I think also another thing, and, and we'll get to uh, the reference that my buddy sent me here in a few seconds, but I think another thing that's important uh, to, to point out to folks who uh, might not know, when we talk about schools in the first century, uh, it's not like they had classrooms that people went to, they sat down at a table and they opened a book. That's not how it was. Uh, when we it, Basically, what we're talking about in terms of a school is a train of thought and possibly that a teacher had disciples that would follow him around or would live with him or something like that. But it wasn't like it, it wasn't a school like what we think of today. It wasn't like a university or even a yeshiva like we have today. Um, I, I think that there could be a solid case made that there was the school of Yeshua. Right, because he had disciples who sure. followed him around. He had kind of this uh, this teaching that he was giving. You have the same thing with Yochanan uh, uh, the Baptizer, John the, Bapti- the John the Baptist. Right, he had these. It seems as though he had uh, these disciples who were around him a lot when he's in prison. He sends uh, his disciples to Yeshua to ask if he's the 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 Christos. Right, um, 
Right. So uh, anyway, um, so let's go to a, uh, a quote here. This is from the Jewish Encyclopedia, and this is what they have to say, because I was looking for early references to Hillel. To and Shammai, and so this is uh, this is a reference that I uh, that my buddy sent to me. This is from the uh, online Jewish Encyclopedia. It says, "Quote: When Josephus and they reference Vita thirty eight, and I found this uh, this it's in Life uh, anyway, uh, Life one ninety, I believe. We'll see it in a few seconds. Uh, so they say, "Quote: When Josephus speaks of Hillel's great grandson, Simeon Ben Gamliel the first, as belonging to a very celebrated family." I've put the Greek there for you. He probably refers to the glory which the family owed to the activity of Hillel and Gamliel I. Only Hillel's brother, Shebda, Soda 21a, is mentioned. He was a merchant, whereas Hillel devoted himself to study. Okay, so this is interesting because they're, uh, they're tying um, first century Hillel, their, their claim of first century Hillel, with a uh, reference by Josephus. Now, uh, originally, I had only looked at Life 190 and uh, wrote my friend back and said, no, it doesn't even mention his family. I was mistaken on that. So if my friend's listening, I apologize for my, my misquote. It's actually, uh, they reference his family in the next verse. So this is Life 190 through 191, I believe. Yes, that's right. Uh, in Life of Josephus, he says, he then sent his brother Simeon, uh, Simon rather, and Jonathan, the son of Sisena, and about a hundred armed men to Jerusalem to Simon, the son of Gamaliel, in order to persuade him to induce the co uh, commonality of Jerusalem to take from me the government over the Galileans and to give their suffrages for conferring that authority upon him. This Simon was of the city of Jerusalem and of a very noble family of the sect of the Pharisees, which are supposed to excel others in the accurate knowledge of the laws of their country. Okay, so... This uh, this could mean multiple things. Is it a direct reference to Hillel? I I don't think that that's what we no. can say. It's not. There's no Hillel in there. No, and and the idea. But I mean, it, uh, there's Shimon ben Gamaliel, Simon know. ben Gamaliel, and we can assume he probably is the same one who was you know a crit an early rabbinic figure. Um, Are you suggesting the, that that he was Paul's? That, that this is the same Gamliel that was Paul's teacher? Then, no, Simeon Ben Gamliel is of his family. Is of probably of the same family as the Gamaliel of that Paul learned from. But anyway, yeah. So this is uh, again what the this encyclopedia. Now the Jewish encyclopedia was done like a hundred years ago plus. So you, yeah. Um, this is before the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know. Um, before a lot of historical things that we know now. And so we always got to, you know, look at those sources in light of what they knew at that day. And we know more now. Um, is it, are we still talking about the general picture of like, okay, I want to read about Jesus and I want to understand his world better. Therefore, Jesus must have been interacting with Hillel and Shammai's teachings because later rabbis say that they were, historical figures in Jesus' day, and even though he's not written about in the New Testament, therefore, or they still are in the background, and so I can imagine when Jesus is talking to Pharisees, he's interacting with the ideas of Hillel and Shammai. Yes. Is that kind of what we're talking about? Yes, and, and so, and my point is, is that when it comes to Hillel and Shammai, um, 
once again, whether or not Hillel was even in in this family, uh, we don't have any we don't have any reference to that until much later, until the Mishnah. The, the early, yeah, it's well, the Babylonian Talmud is the one that that puts Hillel in the house of G- uh, Gamaliel. Yes, we don't have it's a late source. Super I mean, late, that's yeah. like sixth yeah, or so, seventh century. So that's just it's nothing. You don't want to build a house on that. You know, you don't. You, so, so there's, you, let, we want to, Yeshua says build on rock, right? Building on rock means something, right? This is, you know, so putting all this in your basket and saying that Hillel was, you know. My, my point, I, my point is, is that we do have, so we, we do have reference, first century reference. We do have first century reference of Gamliel, right? Because uh, the, the uh, Acts tells us that Paul's, teacher was Gamliel. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so that I have no problem with. My yeah, point that's my, rock. That's yeah, rock. that's rock. My point is is that within you don't have any Roman annals, you don't have any um you don't have any of the gospels and you don't have uh, Josephus or Philo who reference Hillel. And so it, it seems interesting or I mean even the I mean, and not that the Dead Sea Scrolls would, but I'm just saying even around that time frame, we don't have any literature that seems to reference um, any of these any of these people, which which is interesting in and of itself. Um, and not only that, but in the Gospels, we do uh, see uh, the teacher of Israel comes to Yeshua, but he's we have, not. We have Nicodemus. We have Gamaliel. We have key people. Yeah, but uh, but Hillel and Shemai are not there. Here's another thing. Where we get most of the information of, because in the Mishnah it's just mostly Beit Hallel, Beit Shammai, House of Hallel, House of Shammai, not Hallel but Hillel, right? Yep. Um, Beit Shammai. In the Babylonian Talmud, we have Hillel and Shammai as individual. We have all these stories, but they're highly idealized. They're always pitted against each other. And like one of the famous ones is the the Gentile, right? All these like Gentile goes up to Shammai. Shemai chases him away. The same Gentile goes to uh, Hillel oh, yeah. and, and, and like has all this good stuff. It's always these funny, humor, humorous little moral stories um, that appear only in the Babylonian, Babylonian Talmud, which is late, as we said. And it's like using them as these heroes of old to tell little yeah. stories to children, really. That, I mean, that's what it, it's functioning for. It's not telling us actually that this actually happened, you know? Um, okay. So, and, we, and, and one other piece, Caleb, and we talked about this before too, is that you have to understand that rabbinic stories, the, the different rabbinic stories that we read, particularly in the Babylonian Talmud have been shown to reflect knowledge of, and resp- as shaped as responses to Christian claims and Zoroastrian claims. In other words, there were other, other, what we would call religions today, in the world of the Babylonian rabbis, and they're interacting. They know the stories, and they're they're sure. offering. Here's our. Here's what our faith believes. Yeah. Right, and that's that's the background to where these stories come from. So so to take those kind of stories coming out of the Babylonian Talmud and then project them onto the first century, is is just a brutalization of history, and it's a it's a it's like a pillage and plundering of of historical uh, artifacts 
to a, for a bad agenda, for a wrong-headed uh, purpose. Well, okay, so so now we've looked at Hillel, the idea that Hillel might, uh, you know, that Josephus, I don't think Josephus is referencing anything about Hillel. I think that's been shown in the reference that we made. What about Shammai? Well, there have been people who have suggested that Shammai um, is found in, in Josephus. And so let's take a look at this. This is in uh, Josephus Antiquities 15.3. But Palio, the Pharisee, and Samias... And this is who some are saying, well, this might be, uh, uh, oh Shammai. no, Shammai, yeah. A disciple of his were honored by him above all the rest. For when Jerusalem was besieged, they advised the citizens to receive Herod, for which advice they were well requited. Now, here's the thing about this. I'm going to leave this up here for a second for those uh, who are going to be able to see this video once it, once it is posted. Um, here's the thing about this. This is placing them at the fall of Jerusalem. The claim about Hillel and Shammai is that they were... Uh, they lived way before. Yeah, they preceded yeah. Yeshua. So even if this is uh, if this is Shammai, this Samias is Shammai, then it throws even more wrenches in and the... And the, the rabbis have a bad chronology. Yeah. The, it's, either, it's either the rabbis have bad chronology, Josephus is lying, or they're two different people. Oh, and not only that, but it, it would once again show that, that Yeshua was not in any way interacting with Hillel and Shammai. Yeah, so... Well, here, here I was wondering, or can we talk about the Vered Noam article on the divorce? Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me sum this up real quick. Uh, okay. I got I got two more two more quotes here. This one from a wonderful book, uh, and if you don't have this in your library, you certainly should get it. It's called Introduction to the Talmud and Midrash by H. L. Strack and G. Steinberger. Um, I th I believe they're both Jewish scholars, correct? No. No. Okay. Well, I'm wrong. I stand corrected. Um, this is on page 67 to 68. I do have an early edition. This is not, uh, this is not the newest edition, which I have at my home. This is a older you edition. To, the second edition is the one you want to make sure you get, if you're going to buy one, get okay. the second. Okay. So, uh, they say at the bottom of 67 to uh, 68, the biographical narratives about the rabbis are not accurately transmitted. Eyewitness, eyewitness reports. Mostly they are relatively late texts intended for edification, exhortation, or political ends, such as support of the patriarchate or other institutions. They are usually legendary, stereotyped narratives, which, however, do not manifest the marked formal structure of the speech material. This formal difference might indicate that they have passed on through other channels of transmission, but probably signifies instead that the transmission of narrative materials is not as regulated or as important. This, of course, brings with it a lesser reliability. The primary interest in individuals in these texts is only superf uh, superficial. In reality, their intention is above all to in inculcate certain attitudes of life, the rabbinic way of life, and its ideal of study. This probably also explains a considerable number of the differences between the Babylonian and Palestinian versions of many a narrative, like Sifrei, which reflect the respectively differently, different situations of the narratives. Internally, then, the texts pursue pedagogical purposes. Externally, they are rabbinic group propaganda. I mean, and I think that, I think that uh, scholarship as a whole is starting to kind of find this. Now, scholars today are even having to battle with this. People 
like that I fully respect, like my father. We've uh, Rob and I found this, and I mean, full disclosure here, right? Um, so we were looking, and this will bring us into uh, the the discussion of Matthew nineteen and divorce. Which uh, Rob, I'll throw this over to you in a second. Let's see what my father has to say. This is in his uh, commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, volume four. He says. The Torah text that forms the basis for the halakhic debate is Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and specifically the phrase ervat devar, uh, some indecency. The debate between the houses of Hillel and Shammai on the meaning of ervat devar is noted in uh, Mishnah Gittin 9.10. Quote, the house of Shammai say a man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in unchastity, since it is said because he has found in her indecency in anything. Deuteronomy 24.1. And the house of Hillel say, even if she spoiled his dish, since it is said because he has found in her indecency in anything. Rabbi Akiva says, even if he found someone else prettier than she, since it is said, and it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes. End quote of the Mishnah that going on with my father. It seems apparent that the Pharisees who approached Yeshua favored the rulings of the house of Hillel, which held the majority opinion in most halakhic matters. They are therefore seeking to place Yeshua in the minority opinion as yet another way to marginalize his teachings. I brought this up to my father and he said, yeah, I know. I got to rewrite it. So my father's in the in the process of going through his own material and rewriting because he's had to, to come to the understanding, just as everyone, other scholars are too. That, you know, and we really start to see this shift in scholarship come the late 90s into the early 2000s that the that the scholars today are saying, we can't read this material back into the first century. And even my father has fallen claim to this. And this, this is, uh, you know, one of, one of my father's teachings uh, that really starts to show his shift in this is called What Version of the Mishnah Did Paul Read, which was given at uh, the, the Dead Sea Scroll Conference that the Torah Resource put on. Right. Okay, yeah. so I want you to go ahead with your, with your discussion on divorce then. Well, I... I- your your father's commentary is right on. The only, I would only wordsmith a few things is just to say is to just back you know put a little bit of break on you know slow down on the on phrasing it that Yeshua that Yeshua is being cornered into a minority opinion there by Hillel advocates. Because the picture I go away reading is like, okay, so you've got Hillel versus Shammai in the background. Hillel is is the the majority opinion, and they're trying to pin Yeshua into a minority opinion. The only so thing so I so would wait do, wait hang on let me let, let me let me let me understand what you're saying then. So you're saying yes, uh, let's take the idea of an actual Hillel and an actual Shammai out of it. If we if we replace Hillel with majority opinion, Shammai with minority opinion. Instead of House of Hillel, House of Shammai, majority opinion, uh, not majority opinion, then now all of a sudden we have now now we can see what is going on in the first century. Is that what, what you're what is to say? correct? What what your dad is correctly pointing out is that among the Pharisees in the first century, like the Gospels clearly say here in Matthew 19, there is a dispute as to understanding Deuteronomy 24, mm-hmm. right? And what your dad is, is right on target doing, saying he's bringing the earliest rabbinic evidence we have, which is the Mishnah, Gittin 910, and he's bringing that to show there is among the early rabbis a similar dispute that has uh, polarized into lenient versus strict. Sure. And that 
uh, Yeshua being asked this question, we can actually see a trajectory. There's a similar pattern there, leaning of of how do we interpret Deuteronomy 24? So your your dad's commentary is right, absolutely correct to to quote the Mishnah of Gittin 9.10 in the conversation about Matthew 19. Sure. What we just want to make sure is that we keep things chronologically in place. And, and, and one of the places that benefit us is, you know, Israeli scholar Vered Noam. She's written an article on divorce in Qumran, um, which has been a disputed because of such fragmentary texts. Here's another reason why we, we have to be willing as things are discovered and, and, come to light, that we can fine-tune our, our chronology a little bit here, like your dad said he wants to do with his commentary there on Matthew 19, is, is we learn, oh, so Qumran also has a strict divorce to the point uh, policy that, that, this, that a divorced woman is the equivalent of an adulteress. Yeah. They're the same thing, that a, a woman, uh, divorce and adultery are are seen as codifying the same thing. Sure. Through a court decision. So uh, apparently, according to Verid Noam, and she's a top-notch scholar, um, that and she gets into the the weeds on this, and it's a good article. I, Caleb, I believe you posted it in the in the notes. Actually, I did um, today. Okay. Well, in any event, it's available online. Veridnoam.com. You can go to her, her website and read it. Um, that that if we never had the Mishnah, let's say we'd never had the stories of Beit Shammai or Beit Hallel, but we had the Gospels and what she's discovered from Qumran texts. Sure, someone might write say, "Oh, Yeshua's siding with the with the Qumran community, right?" And you could say he's actually, uh, you know, it's the Pharisees against Yeshua and the Qumran community. Right, and that would also be that would be an inaccurate, you know, imprecise language. Sure. What we see though is now with the Qumran evidence and the stringency of divorce, we have data point there. We have Yeshua's teaching. We have John the Baptist uh, crying out against Herod for the same reason, uh, well, adultery anyway, and it has to do with marriage. You know, it's not. Uh, and then you have what we what is attributed in rabbinic writings as Beit Shammai, all seem to show that in the late Second Temple period, before the destruction of the Temple, there was probably a majority, a, a very strong conservative uh, viewpoint of marriage that was being eroded away by more and more liberal reasons. And what the rabbi, the later rabbis do is they paint it, they, they're aware of the same issue of stringency, but what they frame it as, oh, this is all in-house. It's all Beit Hillel versus Beit Shammai. Beit Hillel wins the day. Not only that, not only does the leniency of Beit Hillel meet the day, but Rabbi Akiva, he he sides with Beit Hillel and then gives even another example that even if, if he just decides he doesn't like what his wife looks like anymore, right? And then that becomes the, the halakha, is that divorce is is permissible for all manner of reasons. See, for me, uh, now but, you're, but you're here, one key point that none of the rabbinic texts bring in, to my knowledge, neither the Qumran text. Yeshua's first response is Genesis, hmm. right? He goes, Yeshua goes back and he says, What God has brought together, let no man separate. 
that's an amazing anchoring in the word of Torah that, to my knowledge, neither in the Qumran or in the later rabbinic texts bring that verse in when they're talking about marriage. I think what you're talking about in terms of chronology is extremely important too, because you know a lot of people will say, "Oh, well, of course we we uh, we see that Yeshua is interacting with these rabbis because he quotes them, or because you know he he uses the same language." I see. I I see it a different way. I see that the rabbis want to say that they had it first. You know, uh, and I I think I could probably show multiple instances of this. Um, Things like, uh, you know, the idea of, of uh, the whole debate over whether or not uh, rabbinic tradition stands or not, right? They, they say, one man comes and they say, is this man's ruling right? And they say, no. And he says, if my, if my ruling is right, let the walls of the house— Rabbi Eliezer, yeah, yeah that, that's in the Babylonian Talmud. Yeah. So, but once again, why, why all these things, right? Why do, why do they talk about water? Why do they talk about, you know, a voice from heaven? I think it's because we see it in the, in the Gospels. We also see, you know, uh, Petrie, and we talked about this last week, Petrie, he was talking about the, the uh, Talmud having uh, that Yeshua died on the night of the 14th. I think that they're misreading John. Oh, right. Exactly. I, you know, I think uh, that they're actually reading the Gospel of John and miss. They're they're not understanding it correctly, and so that's where they they're saying that. Or I mean, it could also be in in uh, uh, Rob searched and searched and finally found the first uh, what seems to be the first reference of a, uh, a. I think it's in the Gospel of Peter. Peter, yeah, which, which is, is at best second century. Yeah, about uh, about one seventy is, is where I see it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Gnostic, it seems seems to be Gnostic. Not the point. Um, so anyway, my point is just that it seems like what we have is you know oh this is the ruling that Yeshua gave. Well, we had it first. Hillel said it first. You know oh uh, this is the ruling that the that the uh, Jerusalem Council. You know this is this is what was going on in Acts. Well, we had that first. We had that first. It gives legitimacy to them. And we see, I mean, this obviously we can't, maybe is a horrible and, and not a good comparison. Um, actually, maybe I shouldn't even make that comparison. But my point, my point is simply that I don't think that we have clear enough evidence to say that Hillel, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai were bona fide schools in the first century. I don't think we have evidence to say that Yeshua was uh, attempting in any way to interact with them. And I don't think that we have any evidence that Yeshua didn't say these things first and that the rabbis wrote it into their into their uh, work later. And for those who would disagree, and I know that there are many who are going to disagree, including uh, you know people who go to my congregation, people that are my, my good friends, uh, that's fine. But the burden of proof, I believe, is not on me now. The burden of proof is on you to show where we have this, this kind of evidence coming forward. Anything else on that, Rob? No, good word. I think oh. that, 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 yeah, yeah the, the whole golden rule kind of argument, well, we said it first, you know, that becomes political. That becomes oh, yeah. a political thing. And that's why we have to go back to our method. We have to go back to our method. We have to use the basic biblical, and we have this method in the Bible before the first century, where chronology is important. Yeah, That's what the whole book, the whole story of the Torah from from Adam and Eve through, you know, Noah, Abraham, you know, Joseph in Egypt, 
Moses, right? The golden calf, you know, the second giving of the Torah, you know, 40 years, you know, in the promised land, Joshua judges. What's the point here? First, second Samuel, first, second Kings. These are chronology. Chronology means something. We have to put Saul ahead of David, right? <laughs> we don't, we can't even underappreciate who David is unless we know who Saul is. And we can't really appreciate who Saul is and who David is unless we know who Samuel is. And we can't appreciate who Samuel is unless we know who Hannah, his mother, is, right? It goes, it's, and then we have to know who Eli is. And then we have to know, well, who are the priests? Well, we have to know what's the priest all about? What, is it, what does it mean there's a, there's a Mishkan? Well, you, there's a chronology here. So we and, have to have chronology for order. Chronology is a, a God-given measuring, uh, you know, timeline is a God-ordained organization factor just for our life in general. But in terms of the scripture, we and, and when you abandon that, and you get into some far, I mean, I've listened to Hasidic rabbis, you know, uh, what do they get the Breslovers and stuff like this? I've seen them on the internet giving drashes. And they're like, yeah, King David, he was studying the Gemara of <laughs> Kiddushin, you know, you know, and then, he, you know, they're, they're take that they not only did they put the Talmud in the first century, they put the Talmud all the way back into King David's time. And, and, and it's like things are happening. You know, there's no chronology that yeah. they take the chronology timeline out of the way and then everything can happen whenever they want it to happen to make the point some religious uh, moral quote truth that they want to get across you know it doesn't matter that the chronology gets thrown out the window and that's when we have anachronisms galore and and we're as disciples of yeshua i think we're we can't do that we can't permit ourselves that we don't have that liberty we we just don't have that liberty so my buddy he he brought up a uh, uh, an interesting a counter to what I was saying. And I want to address this really quick because actually I think that uh, uh, it's it's an interesting uh, thought. So it, he said, okay, well, you're saying that because we don't have manuscripts until, you know, much later, and since we don't have any uh, any reference to Hallel and Shammai in, you know, from literature in their time, in their, in and around their time, <clears throat> that proves that they, that they aren't necessarily uh, around. He said, well, what about Ezekiel? Now he said, "I don't want you to think I'm not saying that the Torah is not, uh, you know, not uh, obviously. I believe in the Tanakh, but uh, he, he said, but you know, the, the same argument could be used against Ezekiel. If you're not going to accept Hillel and Shammai, why would you accept Ezekiel? Now this is an interesting point, and I and I'll get to the idea that I think that he should prob- probably should have used uh, the Book of Daniel as a better reference, but not the. But point. we could say, you mean so Moses, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, people. There's there's there are scholars out there that say King David never existed. Yeah." So I mean, in Israel, I yeah. mean, it's just that it's a, that it's a myth. Okay, but but uh, for King, people are going to make that kind of claim. Well, for yeah, but for King David, we have uh, we have multiple books that attest to King David, not just one book. Um, Ezekiel, interestingly, is never referenced outside of his own book. Okay, now Ezekiel is written about the fifth century BCE, uh, and Harrison notes, and I'll give you the reference to this uh, book in just a second. Harrison notes. That the structure of the second autograph, that's in Ezekiel twenty four twenty four, as uh, is basically the same as Thucydides. I, I'm probably saying that wrong. Also in the fifth century, and uh, he he references it that in, uh, in book five, chapter twenty six of Thucydides. 
And uh, that, that reference uh, uh, is in the introduction to the Old Testament by uh, R.K. Harris, uh, Harrison in Erdman's 1973, page 848. Okay, so histor- historically, the things Ezekiel attests to are confirmed in other biblical books like Second Kings and Daniel, right? We also see historic uh, events being corroborated by Babylonian annals and uh, on cuneiform tablets, as well as archaeological findings. So the things that he talks about, first of all, it seems that the, the literature is the same as the 5th century literature. That's number one. And many scholars have basically abandoned the idea that Ezekiel was not uh, written in the 5th century. So first of all, we can place it in the 1st century. Second of all, the stuff that he's writing about, we do have evidence that the things that he's saying actually did happen in that time. So we have a writer of the 5th century, right? 5th yeah, century. Yeah. We have a writer in the 5th century writing about the things going on in that time. You don't you can't say that about the Mishnah. Not only that, not only that. We have Greek translation of Ezekiel. We have quote citations of Ezekiel in second temple sources. Yep. From groups that don't, you know, from different groups. So the point is it was already well received. And we have a strong scribal history of it. We don't have such a thing for Halal and Shammai. We have one group, the Babylonian rabbis, testifying of it. And we know that Jerome learned it from, the rabbis. from some group in the 4th, 5th century. Well, and, uh, and by the time the, so by, by the, time the first century... 500 cent- years after the fact, and we don't have any other... Uh, and we have you know all manner of 1st century Jewish. We're not, we're not at a shortage for... Jewish text from the first century, really. Well, and Yeshua, Yeshua references uh, the uh, the law and the prophets, right? But he and by that by the first century, we know that Ezekiel was canonized. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so, uh, so perhaps a better comparison. I wrote just a small little paragraph here. I say um, perhaps a better comparison would be the Book of Daniel, since the date of the book is so strongly debated by liberal scholars. And many have suggested that Daniel's name doesn't appear in outside, outside the book until 140 BCE. Mm-hmm. Daniel Wallace, however, has challenged this, proposing that uh, Ezekiel mentions the name Daniel, and it is the, da- the Daniel of the Bible in Ezekiel 14, 14, and 20. I've given, I believe I've uh, given, uh, did I reference that? Maybe I didn't put that in your show notes. I'll make sure to put it in next week's show notes. If you put in uh, Ezekiel Daniel into a Google search, uh, Daniel Wallace, who, if you don't know who Daniel Wallace is, Daniel Wallace is, uh, he founded the <clears throat> the Center for the uh, Study of New Testament Manuscripts. He's, in my opinion, and I think in many opinions, the, uh, the leading New Testament uh, manuscript scholar in the world today. Um, he literally wrote, wrote the book on Greek grammar, and uh, he is a dynamite scholar. And so I would encourage anyone to look up that. It is a very interesting article. It's a long article, but it's a very interesting article. Um, so even, even Daniel, um, and this is one reason that, uh, that Wallace then contends that the book of Daniel is, is much earlier. And there's many good reasons to think that the book yeah. of Daniel is, is early as well. And Ben Noonan, our friend Ben Noonan, uh, PhD from Hebrew Union College. Um, it's, I think he's if he's writing a book or he's writing a work right now on Daniel, and um, his expertise is biblical Hebrew and Aramaic and um, Persian, you know, loan words in the Tanakh. In yes. other words, where where you have a an Egyptian word come in or a, an Akkadian term or a you know whatever different you know Hittite. We have all these other you know 
languages that are in the air in the ancient Near East, and they all leave little trails in, in the Tanakh. And, and so Dr. Benjamin Noonan, um, we'll be looking from him for his work on uh, putting Daniel back into his proper Persian era setting rather than like the liberals who want to put it in the second century Maccabean era. Um, but in any event, yeah, the, to, to the Ezekiel, that's kind of a straw man that doesn't really accomplish that. Uh, I, that doesn't get any traction with me um, in terms of making an argument. Um, do, did, did Hillel and Shammai exist? Sure. Maybe, probably the point is uh, certainly the early rabbis believed it believed that there were was a Hillel and a Shammai. There, I, I don't doubt that. Um, I, I, but we, but we I'm have not, to look at our chronology. I'm not suggesting that necessarily, necessarily Hillel and Shammai aren't real people. But at the same time, once again, I think it's just as plausible to make the suggestion that the early rabbis, when they were, you know, they're fighting against Christianity, they're fighting against per- persecution, they're fighting against assimilation into other cultures around them. Constantine comes around, you know, and and makes Christianity the the uh, the religion. But at the time of the Mishnah, but, it, it, but by the year two hundred, uh, Yehuda Hanasi, he's in good with with Rome. I'm not suggesting he's at not. At that all, point. All yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean, all so I'm saying, yeah. but uh, that, that's also assuming that Yehuda Hanasi actually wrote down the Mishnah. That my point is, is that, you know, we, uh, the, the idea that, uh, that the rabbis weren't struggling and needed to put down, they needed to write down, uh, you know, uh, something to keep, to keep the people, uh, you know, to, to keep the religion alive. Right. Essentially, yeah, they, wanted, they needed to build fences around their tradition to preserve, to try to protect and preserve it. There's and so, no questions. it's it's just as plausible to me. And I'm not I'm not going to say that I that that Hillel and Shmai didn't necessarily exist. But all I'm saying is the way that we have it in the Mishnah and or the Talmud seems to be to be more schools of thought from the later rabbis than any kind of form of an actual. Uh, Hillel and Shammai school of thought in the first century. I think that they're they're placing ideas back in here into into these schools. Now, can I prove that? No, and I'm not even going to attempt to. But just like we saw with the what, a good scholarship wants to say, okay, what is what do we see in the Gospels or in Paul? What do we see at Philo and Josephus? What do we see at Qumran? Sure. And then you look at the early layers of rabbinics, and if you get something that's da 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 and they're all firing on the same thing, then you're on good ground. You're on sound. You have a sound basis to explore whatever comparisons and contrasts you're wanting to to uh, investigate. You're on good ground for that. But if you've got radio silence <laughs> from first century texts, and then all of a sudden you've got all this information in the rabbinics, that's when you have to say, okay, the Babylonian Talmud comes from a, a distant land and a distant uh, place. I mean, or a distant time, distant time and place from the first century. The peop- the rabbis of the Babylonian Talmud, most of them probably never even set foot in Israel, let alone they didn't exist. They didn't. They weren't around when there was a temple. So all their storytelling is legend building upon legend upon building building upon legend. Well, and uh, well, let's be clear about what you just with said. Very though. specific religious goals to shore up. Who we are, who is true Israel? But l- let's be clear about. I want to be clear about this. If we see something in the later Mishnah that that corroborates what's happening in the in the Gospels, that's fine. But we still need to understand the timeline. 
timeline. Exactly. And the timeline is, is that the rabbis are much later, and therefore it's more plausible that they're taking from the Gospels than, than the, that the Gospels are taking from some kind of rabbinic tradition. That's, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know why you would read it the other way, and I know that that's what you're saying, but, you know, I, it's not that we can look at the mission and say, oh, well, if, if the Gospels are saying the same thing, then this mission must have been in the first century. No, that's what my teacher, Marty Jaffe, said. You know, you'd be better reading in a Mishnah that in the footnotes has the earlier things, like from the Gospels, in the in the Mishnah commentary, it's saying, yeah, Yeshua said this back here, you know. But but that would be the ideal. But what we yeah. see instead is we see, like, that the Jewish annotated New Testament that Oxford put out, which is just a travesty. But you look, and it's like all the Babylonian Talmud is, is your footnote for understanding the Gospels and uh, you know different scholars. To be fair with that, each book of the New Testament was done by a different Jewish scholar. But it seems like the only criteria for that publication was that the scholar had to be Jewish, <laughs> because there's different skill levels uh, involved and and bad etymology and just stuff that's going on in that. Uh, I have a copy somewhere, but anyway. All right. Let's wrap it up. Hey, uh, I want to thank everybody. Sorry for the technical difficulties today, and I apologize to all the people who were trying to get into the chat room. Uh, we're going to have to figure it out. I think actually about halfway through this show, I figured it all out. Um, but it just shows that our, our main, uh, pla our original platform of radio, of internet radio, podcasting live, uh, is obviously uh, still what we're best at because that worked all three times that we tried to go online. Um, so anyway... Uh, I'm sure that there's a lot of people, even fans of the show, that are going to disagree with what we said today. That's totally fine. You can disagree with us. Call the comment line. Let us know what you think. It is 253-465-3205. Always send us emails, chag at torahresource.com. We also love all your comments on our YouTube uh, videos and also on uh, our Facebook page. So, uh, you know, we love the discussion. Let us know what you thought. And uh, yeah, hopefully by next week we'll have all of the... Uh, all the quirks worked out so that we can uh, be live on YouTube again. And uh, yeah. Anyway, until next time, I hope that this conversation has benefited you, that uh, you've gained something from it. But most of all, we hope the one thing is that this conversation has glorified our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.